Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by my friend Ben Sixsmith for a very unusual conversation. We will be talking about what happened to British culture, what happened to the modern culture, to the arts, to the celebrity, to the writing, to the music, to all of these things that somehow were supposed to have a rebirth in England in the 90s and especially the noughts. And nevertheless, they all fizzled out and England has become for the first time in a long, long time, in centuries really, a wasteland culturally or very nearly. Ben has a new volume of short stories on this subject. I read them over the weekend. I was charmed. I was amused. And I was spurred to think again and again about the kinds of themes and characters he brings up. You will find their politicians, you will find their celebrities in the crazy TV reality world we live in. You will find wannabe artists and all sorts of other characters who aren't important, but are somehow important to me as a reader. I, I thought that they reveal something about English society, about perhaps a broader predicament of trying to turn our lives into a TV show to advertise ourselves instead of living our lives. And of course, I love social observation. I love thinking about what is happening to people, to the beliefs and the morality, to the strange things we notice about ourselves when we realize that we're unhappy and there's nothing much we can do about it. So I enjoyed reading these stories. They're somewhat on the comical side, although they are not comedy and they're not all funny, but maybe I can sell it to you this way. The last big idea of art to come out of Britain was the Black Mirror series, which I largely despise. And I thought that Ben's stories were the opposite of that. They have a humane respect for ordinary life, even though he's funny and he likes to make fun of people, obviously. But he looks at the realities we neglect. He looks at the stuff we take for granted in a rush to be clever or original or to change the world or to change ourselves. We neglect what we really are, what we really are about. And I saw that again and again in his stories. And I am, for that reason, very grateful to have this conversation and to have read the volume. Ben, thank you for joining me again. Usually we quarrel about cultural issues. We fight the these fights in words, but we do not talk about art much. And you are not just a writer or a commentator or a guy with a byline in, in all these different journals of opinion of the times. You're also an artist or a burgeoning artist. And I would like to welcome you in this capacity back to the podcast. Tell us about writing short stories. Tell us about art and observation of society and about your volume. Thanks for such a kind introduction. Obviously, first and foremost, over the past few years, I've been a social and political commentator. And I've learned that as one acquires any kind of career in commentary, once you get a few bylines in different magazines, the natural next step is to write a book. I've had conversations with more respected, better known commentators, and they've always said, you know, that's the next step in your career. But every time I tried to think of a non-fiction book, I would end up being kind of disgusted with myself because I'd realize that the idea for a book could easily be reduced to an article or sometimes even to a tweet. I wasn't so much trying to come up with a book proposal because I thought I had a book worth writing as because I thought it was just natural to write a book. 
So I got quite uh, disillusioned with that effort, I think rightly. But I still wanted to turn to something more substantive than just the usual articles which come out and maybe people discuss them for a couple of days and they're forgotten. And before I wrote commentary, I was writing fiction, uh, short stories for very small magazines, for small websites. So I was inspired to try and revive that aspect of myself and to get away from politicizing all the time. And so that's why I started writing stories. And then I realized, because I think most of these things just happened quite randomly, I realized that they had some similar themes connected with uh, the decline of British cultural life, connected with the new sentimentality, let's say, of modern Western life. And that's why this theme of the noughties emerged. Yeah, that's what really led me to begin to create this book. Folks, first of all, our audience, this is the book. It's Ben Sixsmith. The book is called The Naughties for the Decade, the beginning of the 21st century and the strange world, that fake world, I suppose, the world of systematic televisation of reality that reduces things to frauds. It was the dying gasp of British culture, maybe. I don't know. I was a kid in the noughties. I was in high school and every band my friends were listening to seemed to be British, except this American band, The Strokes. There were revivals of various rock and pop trends. And I couldn't tell whether people thought that these things were new or whether they were recycling 60s or 70s things. But there was very real excitement about it in the early 2000s. I was a kid, and so I watched Guy Ritchie movies, these Cockney accents, and their very charming, very witty heists passed the time. And again, it seemed like young Englishmen had found something to say, some way to say it, some way to be attractive, charming, reckless. It seemed like the daring of youth had, again, something to show for itself and that people were going to make a go of it, especially, I would say, in the arts, in music and writing and movies. But I think the novels were supposed to be more broadly some kind of revival of Britain's cultural empire, since the empire itself was miserably lost. Everybody speaks English, and it turned out that somehow Americans couldn't quite produce a certain kind of chic, a certain kind of charm, a certain kind of elegance, and of course, the derivative of that elegance, bohemian decadence. It seemed like all of these rock bands, for example, would show up for photo shoots in uh, guards' uniforms, the pageantry of 19th century uh, nationalist warfare or the aristocratic uniforms of the past. And was this all ironic? Everybody was very ironic in the 2000s, but I thought not. I thought they really meant that somehow they were going to revive the glories of the past or a vision of glory that has something to do with England's past. I think it all failed, and I think maybe it deserved to fail. I'm making up my mind about these things, and uh, your short stories sent me thinking again and again over the weekend and now, and I think you're onto something really big here, that somehow your, your short stories are like the beginning of drawing out or the contour of some, something important, of some painting that could reveal not just the English to themselves, but uh, what Britain meant to the world, why people were so obsessed with these various cultural products or entertainment or whatever it is that in our vulgar industry we say to describe the yearning for greatness, the yearning for some kind of freedom and creativity and for something beautiful that is enduring, the hope to, to have made a real contribution, something signal. So uh, 
all of this stuff, as you see, is still swirling in my head. I have not thought it through. I'm to an extent still under the spell, so to speak, of your stories. And I'm not entirely surprised to hear that you came to them somewhat accidentally. Because as I said to me as well, it seemed like you were looking now from this direction, now from that direction, now from this vantage, now from that, at something really big, a landscape, a vista that you have not yet fully described or, or fully seized with the eye for yourself. But it seemed like the beginning of something very interesting, and uh, it was quite inspiring. So how about we talk a bit about the vision of England that uh, you put into your stories? What are these aspects of society, of the arts of striving to be cultural or relevant that were on your mind? So I think uh, you're, you're very right that there was this sense of a new English culture. And there was almost a will to believe that we could just, well, will it into existence. And it's interesting how English artists were almost trying to inhabit the shell of the empire and of these past glories you mentioned. Uh, for example, there was this band, the Libertines, who I think you're thinking of, who used to prance around in these guards' uniforms. There, there was a sense that we could pull together these famous cultural features of a kind of older, glor more glorious time and then create something more modern and more progressive out of it. The lead singer of the Libertines, Pete Doherty, uh, had, I can't remember if it was an album or a single, but it was called Albion. And it was all about this kind of magical, mystical England. And of course, his life collapsed, sadly, into just a haze of drug addiction. And it might be slightly insensitive, it might be a little bit rude to use him allegorically here, but I think there was a broader symbolic relevance there, which is we had this will to produce a culture, but there was just really nothing there. You mentioned Guy Ritchie movies, for example, where he had all of these charming Cockney gangsters who just frankly did not exist. He was referencing people like the Craze from the 60s, who'd long since died out and been replaced by gangs in London who operate now, who are mainly from different ethnic groups, rather than being these kind of rhyming, slang-ridden charmers throwing each other into cages filled with pigs. So there, was, there definitely was this urge to be to present this optimistic face, this progressive face of England. That's why I very much wanted to have Tony Blair's bland leer on the front cover. Uh, but there, there was just no there there. I know that using the word fake sounds a bit cynical and Holden Caulfield-esque, but it's just true. We were parading around in the costumes of an older England and charming the world in doing so, but had very little to say when it actually came down to it. And that's certainly the legacy of new labor, but it's also the legacy of England at that time. Yeah, I think uh, you're on to something that somehow there was a lot of rehashing of the 60s. It wasn't just the movies, the music somehow has to do with the moment when English bands were big, the British invasion. And of course, it was played up in the media starting in the mid-90s with Blur and Oasis and bands like that. But over time, it just became, I think, increasingly detached from cultural realities. Uh, as you're saying there, or rather suggesting, there are many shocking, scandalous things that might make for uh, media, for politics, for art, for culture happening in England, but they are not anything that can be talked about. One would lose one's career and livelihood very, very quickly were one to try. The media version of Britain that became so astonishingly successful internationally helped, I think, to quash not just dissent, but any reflection on what was actually happening in the country. 
know, what is the effective result of the Tony Blair transformation of England? It's this confusing Brexit England where it's not clear if anything is changing or if it's changing, why it's changing. Indeed, after the astonishing, almost unprecedented electoral success of Tony Blair, Labour is now in shambles. Labour has been out of power for 11 years and it's out of leaders, it's out of ideas. It's also thrown away its traditional electorate. So somehow that speaks to me of this distinction between the media vision of Britain and the real Britain. Real Britain, whatever happened, people stopped believing in Labour and don't even vote for them anymore after having done so in the generations for a century. But in the media world, it's a Britain that should never have gone through Brexit. In the media-created world, it's a Britain that should have been internationally important because London is such a financial hub. And of course, it can also recycle all the corrupt money out of the Middle East or Russia, right? That's one of these remarkable powers of English charm and English morality is to have whitewashed these incredibly oligarchic and criminal things into, if not respectability, and certainly notoriety, Russian oligarchs, and I suppose Chinese money as well, has become simply accepted in England. And you wonder, is it that England needs to be propped up with this foreign money? Or is it that England is a kind of safe haven for all this corruption that is somehow uncertain of itself and looking for luxury? And England is this giant advertising machine that advertises a new James Bond or I don't know what. And luxury internationally is attracted to it. It's sophisticated. It's glamorous. It's England. That crazy, crazy media world has enormous institutional power. And as I said, it is involved in everything from world finance to, of course, a world espionage where it is not James Bond, it's five eyes, it's the secret services. And now they're involved in the new digital world since MI5 and I think MI6 are getting their cloud services from Amazon. They're going to be doing, I'm sure, wonderful things in this new world of surveillance. And of course, uh, Tony Blair also tried to uh, make Britain great again by war, by rehashing Middle Eastern conflicts of 100 years back, as though Britain could flex its muscles effectively. And David Cameron was no less excited about the prospect and with Sarkozy invaded Libya also. These have not succeeded any more than the domestic ideas about how to transform Britain. So there are these great policies and these strange political transformations that suggest to me that the difference between the elites and whatever real England or the rest of England might be, since the elites too are real, that great divide is in some way the divide between fantasy and reality. Elites have power and institutions, but live in a fantasy world that they for a while populated with or colored in the colors of all these cultural products. That would be some way to make an empire again or to make some kind of you know, world-bestriding power make Britain count a lot more than its small population uh, would suggest otherwise. That's very true. I mean, uh, even the elite conception of itself often is wildly contrary to reality, uh, not just among progressives, but among conservatives as well. You'll still find conservative politicians in England talking, kind of saber-rattling about our potential to stand up to Russia or China, even as the very same politicians have just hollowed the British armed forces out to nothing. So this image of Britain that, that we have of ourselves and the actual institutions that we create or 
that we manage. There is this wild gulf between them. There's one of the short stories where, uh, in my book, in noughties, where uh, this kind of forgotten rock band is invited to play a concert in Saudi Arabia. And the guitarist is very excited because he thinks this is an example of British soft power influencing the Middle Eastern theocracy, whereas it's really the other way around. Maybe not the other way around, but it's not, rather than using them, he's being used. He's just a kind of eccentric entertainment attraction for these very rich, very powerful, very cynical people. So yeah, this disconnect is extremely strong and possibly more so even in other countries. I mean, you, the USA, of course, has a huge element of fantasy in its politics, but it's undeniably a fantastically powerful military and economic force. Uh, whereas England, I mean, it's still, it's still a major world power, as you say, we still, still have a huge financial center. We're still heavily involved in international security, but it's being, undergoing a kind of managed decline in institutional terms even as, as politicians like to talk it up in rhetorical terms and uh, socio-cultural terms, let's say. Yeah, I, I think mostly Britain turned into this weird relationship with America where um, Americans admire everything English. The English accents are still considered attractive in America and uh, in English education, England still has universities that are said to be world-class. And uh, this is supposed to suggest that the English are just more sophisticated than the Americans. And, uh, and it, it can become quite ridiculous and perhaps even worse than ridiculous. There's something... Uh, uh, very, it, it can become both annoying and cloying and deluded all at uh, once. Uh, for example, the American media, and to some extent, popular obsession with the British royal family. Uh, whatever can be said for that royal family uh, should be said very briefly, since most of its members do not deserve any attention. Uh, people are perhaps right to honor Her Majesty, but uh, one cannot escape noticing all these other people who show up in the press and who have marriages or scandals or scandalous marriages and, uh, and are ridiculous, as with this, uh, you know, the, the catastrophe of Britain can be seen in this younger prince or ex-prince or whatever his situation is now, who as a boy was going to war to become a man and seems to have actually flown attack choppers in uh, very dangerous situations to have seen life and death. Uh, and yet, then he turned it to this completely ridiculous cliche of a celebrity managing a brand, involving himself in a conscious coupling with some other celebrity and all these sorts of scandals that turn melodrama into mental health awareness, no doubt. And the, and suddenly you realize that it's the royal family is a big reality tv show uh, absolutely I, and i mean this was uh this was for very much foreseeable in the 1950s the author malcolm mugridge uh, this catholic great catholic author anti-communist he raised an intense amount of scandal by saying that the the respect given to the royal family and the uh the desire to kind of follow the details of their lives and to celebrate every aspect of them, but not just as a kind of traditional force, but as people who should be very public presences was mutating the royal family into more of a celebrity phenomenon. 
And he was saying that as celebrities, the royals uh, inevitably are not going to become res respectable because the impulses that drive people to become celebrities and the impulses that drive people to achieve nobility are very different things. And obviously this is, this is tragically true with Harry who now just wants to spout off about his opinions all day. And I guess it's uh, true as well with Andrew who wants to hang out with Jeffrey Epstein and other such uh, disgusting international creatures. Uh, so yeah, this, this more traditional impulse towards respecting the monarchy had mutated into something very different. And I think that happened also across British life where these old uh, habits became less and less healthy phenomena. Yeah, so uh, reading a number of the stories in your volume deal with this problem of celebrity, whether it's music or it's reality TV or to some extent politics as a celebrity show where you can be your own um, uh, star and you can write your own script and try to get all this attention. And of course, uh, in other ways, uh, from uh, you know, manufacturing heroism to trying to use it for uh, advertising uh, policy uh, and so reading these things I thought how how far would this go and I thought yeah you know uh, it's 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 a strange world where stories far more scandalous than anything you can write are played out in on Twitter and in the tabloids involving the royal family which as a reality TV uh, thing given to scandal but somehow people don't pay attention I'm uh, I, I, but reading your stories, suddenly I could connect all of these things quite clearly. And I thought, maybe you're right to write about ordinary things, not about the most famous, not about the things that sell so much or are much in demand. Somehow there's too much celebrity worship involved and success worship involved in all the trending things that it, it doesn't allow people to see what is in front of their eyes. It doesn't encourage them to notice that a lot of it really is crazy. And we should not be involved in such nonsense. But with these ordinary characters and their uh, touch of uh, celebrity or their strange ambitions that uh, roil them up and somehow make it impossible for them to move on with life, uh, that's, I, that I thought was a very effective way of uh, getting me to think. I'm, uh, I thought, uh, of course, I, I wouldn't say I am your intended audience, but while reading, I felt as if I were that. Uh, you were these were stories you were telling me because you, you know you would know that I, I'd be interested in thinking about this aspect of uh, aspect of things that uh, as I was trying to say that somehow the English are selling something to America like they're selling the royal family like they're selling English charm like they're selling uh, everything from James Bond to I suppose the biggest thing ever uh, Harry Potter uh, that's what the England has become. It's somehow trying to snow the Americans. Uh, England is the, a major producer of fantasies for America, which is desperately on the lookout for more charming or uh, better pedigreed fantasies. That's true. And it's quite a sad state of affairs because we project this air of sophistication while drinking heavily of it ourselves. The origins of James Bond to a large extent were English people deluding themselves that we were still the world power that we would have liked to have been. 
in Ian Fleming's novels, the Americans that James Bond works with are inevitably incompetence that Bond has to rescue from their own foolishness. Uh, because, you know, even though we didn't have the empire anymore, even though we didn't have this institutional power, we like to imagine that English ingenuity, English charm, English resolve would still triumph against all the odds. So it's, it's, I hesitate to say pathetic, but the extent to which other people have embraced our own uh, projection of ourselves is a, is a little bit sad. That's, for example, Americans being so enamored of James Bond when it was so blatantly contemptuous towards them. Uh, so other people swallowed this uh, vision of ourselves that we were trying to, to get them to swallow. But we also ended up swallowing it ourselves, I think. And maybe that is why uh, these, the vision of ourselves and the reality of ourselves can sometimes be conflated. Yeah, I think that's a very good point that somehow uh, the English elites certainly must believe this to invest so heavily in this. And I think to the extent to which it has been a remarkable success, I mean, the British culture must have been a multi-billion dollar industry as an export just in the 21st century in these two decades. And of course, especially in the noughties, as you write, these, all the stuff sold and resold and resold, all the careers made, all of that uh, culture that was some kind of fake Britain, incredibly successful. People loved it. Uh, it's, it's crazy, but I believe it is true that people who were reading Harry Potter thought that this is in some sense sophisticated or that in some sense it's not just uh, your silly magic fantasy, but also... Uh, of the times or for that generation or a coming of age ritual or, you know, there are a million hackneyed phrases for this that all of them have the strange combination of uh, wanting to borrow sophisticated, important thought and at the same time package it cheap so that everybody can feel that they are not threatened, that they are in control of the thing that they are uh, uh, looking to, to brag about, looking to feel superior about. I think people really did read Harry Potter because they thought it made them special and they retailed it because they thought that made them special and all these industries built around it, including movies and so on and so forth. Uh, all of them also borrowed this strange idea that this is not mediocrity with the slightest bit of polish this is not trash god forbid it's uh, something worthwhile at least the kids are reading the the, the strange thing is that uh, it does become an industry and therefore all people's lives and careers are uh, built on it and now everybody knows who jk rowling is and she can be caught up in all sorts of woke scandals in our time this should not have happened in the first place but uh, but it didn't work out that way. England was busy selling fake uh, talent and fake culture, and J.K. Rowling is the best example of that, at least in terms of sheer success. And I have nothing against the lady. I will defend her against all these crazy wokies trying to ruin her career or peace of mind. But uh, what she writes is mediocrity with the slightest bit of polish, and 
no self-respecting person should talk about that, much less uh, people who pride themselves on culture or uh, you know, transforming uh, the world through vision. It's not visionary, it's not even as fantasy, it's just uh, a sign of this crazy world. We like fake fantasy, the cheaper the better. It's, it's the ugly truth about what England sold the world. And I am, um, partly because I saw this growing up, I knew kids who were teenagers or even young adults reading Harry Potter, and they were not ashamed of themselves. And uh, when I noticed that, I thought, uh, what the hell are any of these people in high school or college for if this is what they do? Uh, it's not fit for a 15-year-old. Uh, it's not fit for a 20-year-old. It's nonsense. And uh, yet, this fake world must have uh, created a lot of belief. It must have affected real people's lives. Um, I, I, I don't know to what extent people were just caught up in the madness and just thought, well, it's working all this money, all this attention, all these uh, people all over the world who speak English, reading or listening to such things or watching such things, it's real because they, they make belief. Make belief is real in large enough numbers. Maybe the madness went that far, but in another way, as I was alluding to from the point of view of um, high politics or what passes for high politics for the electoral successes of Tony Blair and the wars and the finance and the uh, intelligence work, all of this stuff would say that English elites managed to switch from having anything to do with the English people who are a big disappointment to them to getting a consumer market somewhere else, primarily in America or through American influence in other parts of the world. That, uh, it became possible to re-legitimize English elites, not as the elites of England or Britain, much less the faded empire, but as somehow uh, legitimated by American interest and support and money. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot to that. Uh, I, I don't think just in England, I think across the world, world leaders feel more connected as a community of leaders than they do to their own communities. I'm sure for many leaders, the highlight of the year is attending Davos and definitely not attending, you know, visiting Birmingham or Manchester or Liverpool or even in a London sense, Hackney or Camden uh, or whatever the uh, equivalents for other countries would be. There's a desire to role play as a statesman. I think Emmanuel Macron is especially successful as that as, uh, uh, this, without necessarily having the long-term responsibilities of a statesman. And uh, you mentioned earlier about writing about ordinary people. I think it, it is significant how from the bottom to the top, LARPing, live action role-playing is really a great theme of our times where people the lives people envision for themselves, they don't necessarily want to take on uh, the responsibilities that such lives would entail. And the technology we have, the media empires that we have allow us to pursue these, these fantasies without necessarily having to put their ideals into practice. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tony Blair wanted to be this great humanitarian figure democratizing the world, but either 
put very little thought into how this could be accomplished or is too stupid to uh, have thought about it with any intelligence, for example. Uh, yeah, and I think it's such a good example because Blair eventually wanted to be some kind of leader of the European Union, which is usually an ambition for mediocrities from Belgium or other fake countries, not for uh, you know uh, the UK. But in his case, uh, he almost made the leap, so to speak, except that uh, in time, Britain itself uh, leapt backwards and some, in some strange way, I do not entirely understand, wishes to not be part of the EU or, uh, or of Europe. And the, uh, you know, I'm for the English people being English and getting out of the EU. I don't know what it means, however, and it's, it, it, it can't but be noticeable that years later, there's still no idea of what does this mean? If we're finally living the fantasy world of elites and uh, their institutional power plays and this uh, Europeanization thing, uh, there's going to be a real country with real politics because the English are for England and they voted Brexit. Well, what? What are they going to do? What is this English future? What is it supposed to be? Who will be doing that? Who is volunteering for the job? There is next to nothing. I am uh, loath to say it, but in a certain sense, the epidemic uh, was almost providential for elites in the sense that they didn't have to do anything for the future of the countries from which they profited so much, but instead could uh, say, well, you know, these are desperate times and uh, we have to keep uh, keep desperate and keep safe and try to make sure we don't lose too much of whatever it is that we're losing, uh, our lives, our economies, etc. But, uh, but in fact, uh, yeah, Without the epidemic, what will it have to offer Britain? Nothing. Or, or we could say the sort of shocking times, if it's such a catastrophe, this epidemic, there should have been some kind of um, gasp of life, of perhaps the life of the mind, the life of the arts, something, some writer, some music, some protest or some statesman or some leader of a spiritual or moral character, somebody should have shown up. But it turned out that all that fake culture had nothing to offer and nobody was interested. And uh, so you could, you could say that uh, this sort of uh, event revealed how little thought there was about the present or the future, uh, how little reality there was uh, in, uh, in Britain's culture. There's nothing to show for in the face of what is supposed to be a catastrophe. And, uh, and in somehow the, the big fantasy seems to have sold because most people are ordinary people living ordinary lives. That's, that's by definition that uh, most people are the majority. They're the whatever people are like, that's, that's them. But uh, elites are too. Uh, there's, there's this strange delusion that celebrity can make you special not that special people should perhaps be celebrated in certain ways or at certain times. That is to say, the utter mediocrity of elites who have nothing to offer Britain in terms of culture or leadership to a significant extent, uh, that, that mediocrity might make them more relatable in a strange sense. The, the distinction between people who want to be celebrated as politicians and people who just want more honest, if more shameless forms of celebrity, uh, that distinction might not be important anymore. 
the, the utter mediocrity of cool Britannia, of the Blairite transformations, might simply be a kind of acknowledgement that you need to be in an institutional situation for power or privilege, and you don't have to be special, and, there, and you shouldn't even worry about being special. Um, the, the institutional power makes you special. Being part of the media blitz, in some sense, makes you special. It doesn't matter who you are, and, uh, and that, in a sense, is because Britain doesn't really need anything. The English no longer understand themselves as calling forth some particular form of greatness. It's just not needed. It's just like you, you can go to the Abbey and see all these great politicians of the past or uh, see some of the, the, the grandeur of England. And it's all on show and it's all gone. It is not now necessary for England to produce greatness. It is not necessary to have men of genius anymore. It is not necessary even to remember them, actually. It's, it's all right now. From now on, utter mediocrity with some uh, scandal for fun will, uh, will be enough. And therefore, as you say, you don't have to be special. You just have to lark. You just have to pretend that uh, you are... Uh, creature of culture, a creature of politics, a creature of whatever still gets people interested. But you don't have to take it seriously. You don't have to compare yourself to the great men of the past, much less uh, think that uh, there might be some terrible trouble in the country that, need, that calls forth, that requires greatness as the only possible solution. I think you made a, a great, very incisive point about the pandemic. Uh, which I must admit has never occurred to me before, but it's absolutely true. It gave Britons an excuse to shelter, to turn in on themselves at the point where they might have been expected to be pursuing some kind of national renewal uh, in the days, weeks, months after Brexit. There was all of this talk of kind of global Britain, whatever that was supposed to mean. And then as soon as COVID hit, uh, for better or worse, the borders closed, people went inside and shut their doors and have, haven't really come out since. I think it's, it's easy to seem contradictory when you talk about Britain now because there's a great deal of change and a great deal of stasis. And what I mean by they say, I, when I say that is almost everything must change so that everything can stay the same. For example, we need tremendous unprecedented mass immigration to prop up uh, vast social care and health system. Uh, we need this tremendous demographic change where people throughout their 20s and 30s are forced to rent small flats together rather than buying houses and starving families because we can't possibly build within a thousand miles of the nice villages where uh, wealthy pensioners have rooted themselves. So in order to maintain this kind of relic of an older England, everything else has to modernize in the most reckless and uh, in, in some forms at least uh, degenerated ways possible. So it's, it's, it is a very sad predicament. I think to transcend that, we are going to need, I say we very broadly, I mean, 
Uh, we are going to need to have some kind of adventuring spirits to recapture the adventuring spirits of older Englishmen. Not necessarily in the same ways, of course, we're not going to build another empire. But artistically, uh, in the sense of uh, innovation, in the sense of uh, inspiring young people to pursue scientific, economic, cultural faiths, we need that kind of pioneering, adventuring spirit. Uh, I tempted to be sentimental and conjure up the names of, you know, Cook and Drake, just to say that this is an aspect of Englishness because it was associated with the empire and the real or alleged crimes of the empire was just left to rot in a kind of scrapyard of history while we consoled ourselves with these uh, fantasy cultural products. Um, of course, the empire did have crimes, both real and alleged, and, the, and somehow great men ended up taking the blame for it, not because people who are not at all great would not commit crimes. After all, just because Tony Blair is nothing of William Pitt does not mean that he did not involve the country in catastrophic wars. Uh, but uh, small men are, cannot be held responsible for their crimes somehow. That's the, the, the strange thing about England is the, the outsized reputation or influence of England, this image of English culture that in the knots in the noughties had such influence in the world. Uh, it, it, it's so silly, it's so ridiculous, and yet so large. It somehow suggests that uh, yeah, these are very small people who can't be held responsible for what they did because uh, they, you could because you can't. I mean, you really cannot. They, they do not understand it. There's nothing else they could have done. They, it was never going to be possible for them to do all right. It's strange to blame all these people in this in these fake industries of Englishness because they couldn't have done better. They did not have other great ideas that were just put on the shelf because they made the wrong choice. There's is not a tragic conflict. Theirs is not squandered opportunities. Uh, it's just a, a really unpleasant mediocrity that if it uh, had any uh, kind of moral shock to it, must, it must be that there, there must have been some Englishmen who were worth taking seriously, who never made the light of day because of this media, reality TV Britain, this fake culture, this strange international influence made it made their lives impossible or at least careers or something like that that uh, it's probably there are still uh, men worth the attention in britain probably there's even greatness somewhere but uh even the notion that one should be looking for it instead of counterfeiting it on tv has become um uh, almost uh, unacceptable it's uh you can't even tell people that uh, there's nothing more ridiculous than seeing English people, especially in the prestigious universities, have woke worries. The English should be spreading their prejudices to the world, not importing the prejudices of other places and uh, you know, having moral dramas out of this. It's uh, at least the English used to have these fake identities of English making like James Bond. Now they are woke identities of foreign making that the English are importing because even in their fantasies, they are now slaves rather than masters, so to speak. They're uh, 
the prejudices of other places like the American progressive left are now have more power over the minds of silly Englishmen than the prejudices of England itself. It's pathetic. It's, uh, it's you know, loss of empire and loss of uh, reputation is too much, I would say. These people cannot be trusted as, as elites because they don't even want to defend their own prejudices. They will adopt the prejudices of strangers. The, uh, the possibility that uh, these people could straighten themselves out, that they could offer England genuine leadership options for human greatness or human flourishing, uh, it's, it's not worth entertaining. Whether they can be changed or whether the English people want them changed, uh, who knows? I'm, uh, I'm not in a position to speak on these matters. And of course, uh, I'm limited to cultural statements or interests since that's what comes across. But uh, one cannot forget that indeed the English were great. They had greatness in many fields. And um, some of that presumably without requiring new genius could inspire people to at least do well and to do well enough. We, England doesn't have to be this sort of pretense, this sort of uh, pretended elegance or pretended bohemian decadence, this pretended uh, knowingness, uh, this pretended niceness or, or these qualities of the fake culture um, that have almost become uh, how people around the world recognize an Englishman. All of this nonsense could be set aside in favor of people who at least know what made England great and have some idea about what might be done today in light of that. People who know England's history and uh, can admire and love what was great in it. That's, I think that's also something that was stolen from people once this fake culture of the noughties, this new global Britain was conjured up into existence and retailed globally. I think another reason why English cultural products like Harry Potter and James Bond have been popular to the extent they are, doesn't, it doesn't just reflect an English problem, it's this wider, Western misconception that art exists almost as a kind of warm bath, where it's not something that exists to challenge us as well as to entertain us, but it's just a consolation almost. It's, it's something that we, we shelter in when we have time to escape the, the wider world. Uh, you know, uh, James Bond, it's, Another reason it caught on so much in the 50s was because of Ian Fleming's uh, delicious descriptions of the kind of meals that James Bond was eating. As far as, far as I know, that was, uh, had more selling power than the women he was taking to bed because it was still an era of rationing and uh, it was almost kind of erotic to read about the kind of banquets he would go to. So when people watch these kind of glamorous movies with all of the high living and the high drama that no one good really suffers from. Or when people read about this kind of charming boarding house fantasy of Harry Potter, which of course has you know, many dark elements, I'm not trying to suggest it doesn't, but is ultimately a story of cheerful friends in uh, charming circumstances. 
it's it, it's it's not a way to inspire ourselves. It's not a way to push ourselves. Uh, it's not a way to uh, to learn or to uh, to progress as much as it's a way to just kind of wallow in our creature comforts. And that that is a, a broader problem with Western culture. Of course, we want to enjoy art. I'm definitely not suggesting we should be all reading Finnegan's Wake and blood streaming from our eyes. But it's not the sole function. Uh, and I think uh, there's a story in my book about a woman who's obsessed with The Sims, this little video game where you can kind of create a happy domestic life, even as your own goes to the docks. And yeah, that kind of that fantasy is not all the art should be. Yeah, I think you're right. This is, uh, I think, of great importance, the extent to which what makes for prestige or popularity now is premised on wallowing, that it depends essentially on helplessness. Um, one of my friends uh, uh, very astutely pointed out that people find it uh, easy to indulge even very dark fantasies because of this strange comfort of helplessness. That is, it's much easier to imagine the apocalypse, the end of the universe, than uh, changes to our social arrangements or economic arrangements or political arrangements. Uh, the planet might blow up, sure. Uh, can we change anything in politics or the economy? I mean, why even bother? It's not even worth thinking. It's, it's just a great big sigh of disappointment before the moment go. So yes, I think you're right that somehow art or culture has become the, uh, uh, the lullaby of a decadent uh, age. And that's not uh, different for art that is supposed to be edgy or transgressive or scandalous. It is pretty much the same thing. None of it seems to, uh, none of it seems to entertain the notion that you could observe what's happening in people's lives think about it intelligently, dramatize it in a beautiful, compelling way, and reveal people to themselves in a way that will lead to some sort of improvement in judgment, in moral concern, in, uh, in their own lives, not uh, lead to a revolution, not lead to some kind of um, moral uh, reconstruction of the nation or of the self, but uh, improve people in the ordinary way in which observation, judgment, reflection uh, are supposed to make adults of us. In, indeed, you say that that's what it would mean to not be children anymore, but to be adults, to be able to look at ourselves and each other and to recognize what goes on, to, un to come to understand ourselves to an extent. And uh, that needn't be the creation of a new empire or the or a new uh, you know, faith that inspires people to completely transform their lives. In fact, uh, it, it might be better if people were reasonable and moderate. And um, you say that these things are promised somehow in the moderation of English character before it was caricatured. But perhaps even in the caricature of England, we see the unique modern example of moderation. 
English humor is not supposed to be particularly bent on humiliation and it is not particularly cruel or self-revealing to the point of obscenity. It has much to recommend it for all those reasons. And so with uh, other things concerning manners, uh, they're supposed to suggest people could be less self-obsessed and uh, better at taking care of themselves for that reason. Um, the English were for a long time the example of moderation because they did not involve themselves in all the crazy ideological revolutions of the last 300 years. And um, now I'm not sure anybody in England, first of all, respects that English character of moderation. And I don't know of anybody who turns to art to understand it, to reveal it, and to restore its reputation, perhaps, too. That's true, and it almost, almost perhaps it was a weakness in our culture in that it made us susceptible in the end to um, almost a, a greater level of fanaticism because inspiration wasn't moderated. Uh, if you had some wacky idea, uh, you, you, know, you, you, you might have the conservative voices just kind of clucking at it but you, you might not necessarily be engaged with in a way that could channel it in a productive direction. There's a lot of 20th century English art, even art that I admire, which is just determinedly parochial. Uh, I, I very much admire the poetry of Philip Larkin, for example, but it, 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 makes, uh, it makes a virtue out of being incurious, or at least he, as a poet, he made a virtue out of being incurious uh, to the point that there was almost no in between uh, those reactionary voices and the more radical progressive voices which were kind of stewing in uh, on the left and in the academia. Uh, so that kind of English moderation, maybe it made us, in the end, once the institutions that it inhabited had been hollowed out, Maybe it was, uh, it made us more susceptible to increased radicalism and uh, institutional capture by the left because uh, there was no kind of theoretical engagement or very little theoretical engagement with these ideas. Yeah, that is a very good point. Perhaps that we could, that we could say is the, the missing culture of England, uh, a defensive English character that is to some extent out of character for being pugnacious and ambitious, but which is uh, nevertheless necessary, not least to keep the English, uh, as it were, healthy spiritually by uh, exercising their powers, by defending themselves. Uh, it's, I think it's, now it would be laughable to think of somebody standing up for England or defending England in a persuasive way. What would the audience be and why would anyone bother? It's, uh, but, uh, but perhaps that's not right. Perhaps the, it would have been good to have, uh, and it would be good now to have people who have uh, reasons to be angry and reasons to be hopeful, both, and artistic resources to get that across. Yeah, and that's just to take one example, 
try and illustrate what I mean. It's quite difficult to imagine an English Michel Welbeck, like very much a reactionary figure, but one who is deeply curious about literature, about science, about futurism. And so has the ability to very imaginatively and uh, vividly present his perspective. Whereas if you say right-wing author in England, you're more liable to think of people who crank out these kind of slightly cheap thrillers with all due respect to people like uh, the one that comes to mind, I'm afraid, is Frederick Forsyth. Like, uh, all due respect to him, I mean, it takes a lot of ability to, uh, to write a good thriller. I'm not sure I could do it myself. But it's difficult to imagine anyone writing a novel of the caliber of atomized or uh, submission. Because that level of imagination is almost seen as something suspicious and continental. Uh, yeah, I think you're right that uh, somehow it's uh, you're making too much of yourself. You're making too much out of things. It's not the way. But uh, I suppose the, the late Roger Scruton wrote novels. I read one of them about Prague in the 80s. And it's not a bad novel, but it's not impressive. It's, it's that there's an impressive story there that somehow he never quite got at because it's... Uh, he, there is something getting in the way of his noticing what he's facing. Um, it's a kind of absence of ambition. He, he conveys Prague from the point of view of Czechs, I, I guess, well, I, I, I have no expertise, but that's my guess. But on the other hand, to get across to you why this is so important to the human soul, the confrontation with communism and so forth, uh, yeah, not a lot. And for a man who was there at the time and was and participated in dissidents, uh, even facing personal dangers, there's none of that. It's uh, it's remarkably affectless. Uh, I would go so far as to say, and uh, I can't really think of an English novelist nowadays that's uh, worth the name. The, uh, I, I'm, for my part, I believe there should be that uh, there's a lot in England to write a novel about or to write uh, stories. I am, uh, as I told you before, an admirer of the young Kipling's short stories because they were so well observed and so revealing. Uh, he could in small ways bring up the whole problem of empire. Uh, and uh, now there is nothing really like that. I'm... Uh, I think the English are still, in a certain sense, civilized. And to be civilized is to be intelligently interested in oneself, to, to avoid, to some extent, vanity and flattery, but still to be able to understand oneself and take one's problems seriously and, uh, and, and invest one's dignity in self-understanding. Civilization is education. And uh, I don't think it would do to simply complain about the corrupt media enterprise of the England TV show or about the crazy lefty stuff that England is importing from America. It would be worth ultimately to ask, does anybody believe they should 
speak intelligently to the British about Britain. If, because if not, then there's really no point in complaining. It's, uh, uh, in a sense here, I suppose, I, we're, we're talking about things in the, perhaps in the wrong order. I was, uh, I find myself much more critical of this British culture of the noughties, of cool Britannia, than I felt when I was reading your stories, because your stories are so much funnier than my criticism and angry arguments here are. So I, I recommend uh, to our audience, uh, get the book and read it and uh, enjoy these stories. Uh, don't let my rather dark tone um, color your uh, perception of them or your guess about what they would be. Uh, it's a book I picked up and read over the evening and I am um, uh, still thinking about some of these stories. And um, as I said at the beginning, grateful for the chance of a conversation. This has put England in a light that I had not uh, considered before with any care. It was, uh, it, it, it was a wonderful opportunity for me and I owe it to you entirely, Ben. So thank you for this and for showing up for the podcast. Thank you very much. And yeah, I'm in a... Obviously, I didn't choose to write in a kind of satirical way for such calculated means. But I, I do think English artists, as much as the English sense of humor is overvalued as an aspect of our identity, I do think English does lend itself in many ways to comedy. The language lends itself to comedy in the sense of uh, the ability to use irony and uh, illusions and symbolism and imagery and of course we do have in many ways as, as do others but we do have because of its outsized influence we do have an exceptionally absurd array of institutions which are uh, wonderfully vulnerable to uh, mischief making to satire so that is uh, something English artists especially if they're critical of the kind of soggy mainstream, uh, they shouldn't consider it the highest virtue, but they should definitely consider, use it to their advantage. Uh, if nothing else, because there's a lot of fun to be had. Um, yes, I agree. It makes for a certain kind of confidence. There is something astonishingly powerful about this cultural industry and this worldwide influence, but in another way, one in laughing at it is free of it. And, uh, and there is indeed uh, quite a lot of fun in noticing uh, what a silly world this uh, has become. Uh, I suppose uh, I, for, for one, find it much preferable to the alternative of uh, becoming overly grim, hateful, bitter, and worrying about every conspiracy theory and so on and so forth. Uh, even with conspiracy theories, you should pick the most interesting ones. Don't... Uh, uh, because that too would be a kind of imaginative uh, speculation, um, writing the thinking through a national problem rather problems rather than bad temper, not to say bad digestion. Uh, it seems more humane to laugh at the ridiculous stuff when once one is free of its influence. So, uh, so our uh, our conversation, I think, has come around to a conclusion. Uh, but I would like, before I close, to recommend our audience go 
on Amazon and buy this book. It's called Naughty's 11 Echoes of a Dismal Decade by Ben Sixsmith. Thank you very much, Ben. And let's chat again sometime soon. And meanwhile, uh, happy Christmas. Ah, Merry Christmas to you too. Bye-bye.